Hello and welcome to episode five of Off the Record. Uh, we've had a great few episodes and it seems like we're getting a lot more feedback lately. So keep checking out offtherecord.fm for new episodes and show notes to, to keep on track with us. Last week we talked about a bunch of stuff, but the most feedback we probably got was about uh, a discussion about Blink-182 and why I think they should maybe go back on hiatus. Uh, I posted a follow-up article on Property Zach called Not Now. It's time for Blink-182 to go on indefinite hiatus again. It got a lot of feedback. I was surprised I got a lot less hatred than I thought I would. Um, though there were like a few death threats, but not as, not too many. Not as many as when Ronnie Iraqi and I go to war. Which also happened last week. But um, one, one thing of interest that did pop up from the feedback was that it looks like Mark Hoppus of Blink-182 read the post. Um, which is cool. I didn't freak out at all. As you might expect <laughs> from me as a really professional person. <laughs> uh, I freaked out. Total, uh, total lie. Total lie. I freaked out. Uh, but Mark's response was kind of simple. I'm Blink-182 for life, and he, he expanded that. He understands the sentiment, but he just he isn't going to let that happen, basically. Uh, so that's something that, I guess that sounds appealing, right? It's a, it's a promise, but I don't know. To me, it's like, is that an empty promise, or uh, is it not? And so I, I guess we'll see, but it's at least cool to know for Blink-182 fans that at least one-third of the band uh, does not want the band to go away. We'll see about the other two-thirds. <laughs> um, but to get into our first... It, it, go see, ahead. See, it, it, it seemed like a uh, promise as much of a uh, passive-aggressive way of saying to the fans, this isn't my fault, please don't blame me. <laughs> Tom doesn't want to be there. I do. Yes. Yeah. Well, it, it gave me a little glimmer of hope. Not much, but, you know, nice. just, a, just a little bit. Uh, our first. I guess the other follow up is. Yeah. What, uh, the other follow up is is uh, we finally fixed all our sound issues, so this week should be sounding a lot better than previous weeks. I got a microphone and I actually had the time to test it instead of taking it out of the wrapper and starting to do a podcast the first time I used it. So we're making we should be progress. Good on that. A lot of progress. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Cool. Well, our first topic this week is uh, what kind of happens when albums leak. Um, on Friday, I think it was Friday, seven albums leaked in one day. Uh, and that's a lot of albums. They were all uh, <laughs> they're all metalcore genre kind of albums, uh, and they were all semi-related to each other. So in that case, it can kind of be assumed that either some uh, writer or someone that works for a website or publication either got really drunk or dumb or whatever and uploaded all of them or someone stole them off of his computer or Dropbox folder or whatever. But seven leaks in one day is kind of crazy. Uh, and it's also a terrifying and, and the Tiger's thing. Draw leak? Yeah, Tiger's Draw leaked as well last week. Um, so I guess there's a few different sort of things to talk about. Uh, the the um, The outlet side of it is potentially most interesting to me just because of properties act. So whenever we see any website that we're, you know, friends of or acquaintances with go through like a leak situation, it's always like a very scary thing. Cause it's like, wow, that could have been us. Uh, and you know, when most leaks happen there, I would say from people that I know, like they're often just accidents, something shitty happened and it's not necessarily totally under your control. You probably could have been smarter, 
but the intention is rarely there to cause harm. Um, and then the other side is kind of like what you do in that, what you do in the case of as a band or a manager as a label when your album leaks. Uh, Jesse has a really great story about the Real Talk release from Man Overboard that I think is a good way to kind of start that discussion if you want to if you want to share your four-year-old concerns. Five-year-old? Five years? Four years? Where are we at? Four years. Four, four, four years. Four, four years, yeah. Four this years. is 2010. So, um... At the time, I was managing Man Overboard. It was right before Real Talk came out. They had had one compilation full length and a couple EP releases. So they developed enough of a fan base that there was a lot of people while we were in the studio, like, you know, literally saying out loud on social media that they'd like to get a leak of that record. Um, So we decided to only send it to um, under 10 uh, trusted outlets. And, like, people we were good, good friends with um, that were writers um, at the time. And um, sadly, one of them uh, was hitting on some girl who ran a blog and gave her a copy, and she uploaded a song to her Tumblr. So I saw this, and I was on my way to a date, and I had a one of those little netbook things, and I got online and I start messaging her and trying to get her to not post any more songs and I have to cancel a date while I'm sitting in Union Square on a laptop and uh, so she doesn't post much more but then we basically decide we have to have a plan for this record leak and I say, you know, for about three years at that point I'd been writing on Museformation about how ridiculous it is that labels ignore leaks and don't make the most of them and um Particularly, there was like a Thrice record. I want to say it was the one like Big yeah, Sue no, or however called, you say that well, one. Well, yeah, but Beggars, I, maybe that leaked, but Beggars is the that one. That was the one that did. Yeah, Beggars leaked like three months yeah, early. Leaked, yeah, it was nine. It was like 93 days or something insane. And they basically just ignored it. And I was like, you know, this is not the way to do this. And I'd written a lot of articles about this. And I told Jeff and the band, I was like, if this leaks, let's put it up on Bandcamp. Like, I'm going to upload it to Bandcamp. But I'm not going to hit publish. And the second we think it leaks, we're going to hit publish, and I bet you we're rewarded for it. And sure enough, that was the case is when it leaked, which I want to say was a month before. Yeah, that sounds um, right. Yeah, my memory is not what it was. Um, but so sure enough, we have so many people who say to the band, I never heard this band before. I don't really like them, but I'm going to buy this to support other bands doing it. And we got so much good press off of it. We were featured in crazy big websites like Tech Dirt. And there's even a link to it in a Time Magazine article at one point about two years ago. Um, it's It was really crazy about how much support you get when you treat your fans with respect. And you harvest that um, enthusiasm for your fans. Because what I always thought of it, and the reason I was passionate about this, is I would have a really bad moral when I want to support a band, but I'm now seeing 20 people Facebooking and tweeting about how good this record is, and I want to listen to it. But I also want to listen to it in the quality a band meant me for me to listen to it in. I also want to support the band. So I didn't want to have our fans go through a moral quandary at all. So this worked out great, and um, since then, Jeff from Run For Cover has done this anytime uh, one of his album leaks. But it's funny is that a lot of these labels still sit and try to maintain the illusion that their first week numbers are going to get just so destroyed by doing this that they just don't adapt to it. And um, I kind of think it's a little ridiculous. And I think one of the other smart things 
that we've seen over time is that some of the labels that do it, they also even discount the price a little bit so that you really aren't having a bad moral quandary. And they, you know, I think so much of managing and what you do in the music business is like this principle and stoicism that you take a tragedy and you turn it into opportunity. And this is the perfect example. And it's amazing to me that we're still discussing this all these years later and watching labels just ignore these leaks like they're nothing. Yeah, it's kind of confusing to me. And so I, ju- I just checked online and it looks like Real Talk leaked on uh, June 24th and it was supposed and it, the, re- the release date was July 19th. So it leaked about three weeks early. Um, <laughs> so to me, like what you were saying just a minute ago, there's sort of this practice in the music industry for managers and labels. And the one en- the one end I feel like is oh, we're going to like take advantage of this situation and the other is we're just not going to do anything because that kind of scares us. And that second part, kind of like what happened with Thrice, is this is something that's so confusing, especially today, and we still see it. Um, if your album is leaking over a month early, and let's say it's, like, God forbid, two months early, and that's just that just sucks, right? Like most labels, mm-hmm. unless it's someone that's flexible, truly like a run for cover, they're just, they hate changing. They don't want to. They don't. It's like because it's a it's a huge frustration, right? Like you have to change everything, but it's worth it long term. The one really good example I can think of a label that changed their leak like a strategy when an album leaked was Epitaph last year with Bring Me the Horizons record. It was supposed to come out something like April thirtieth, and it leaked in February, and they moved it up a full month. And they they couldn't do it any sooner because of vinyl and all that other stuff. But they moved it up a full month, and it still debuted with somewhere I want to say around thirty thousand albums sold the first week. And this was with a two month early leak, and that was great. Like props to Epitaph for doing that. They did a really really great job, and it's because it was such a major release that they probably felt the pressure to say, "Wow, we we can't afford we can't afford doing a disservice to the band and to the label," you know, and. And I thought that was great. But then you have albums like the most recent Circus Survive and Say Anything albums where they leaked early and they were just ignored. And often when that happens, I think it kind of just takes the wind out of a release, especially if it's not loved, right? So like the the last Say Anything album, Anarchy, My Dear, leaked two and a half months early. No one acknowledged it. I remember doing an interview with Max right after it leaked. And I brought it up and he was like, hey, like, let's not can we try to not talk about that we don't really want to acknowledge the leak and i was like sure but it confused me so much because the conversation about the album took a really bad turn because a lot of people didn't love it and because they could hear this whole thing at once and they were everyone basically just wanted to hear the album so they could make a decision about it and everyone listened to it and it was shitty quality and everyone was like i don't i don't like it and then that that set the tone for the album until it came out two and a half months later. And then by then a lot of people had given up on it, you know? And so that's, yeah. that's one thing. And that, that's just so frustrating to me. It's like, especially when it's a really bad quality rip, it's like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> yeah, no, I remember with like the under oath thing with, uh, what was it to find the great way that the rough mixes leaked first. Yeah. And, you know, it was that, that's that's just horrifying. And, you know, you don't want your art judged on by something that is not finished. Um, but I think that's the other thing that we have to acknowledge is that every day that an album's out there as a leak is another day that, you know, hundreds of fans are sending it to each other to say, what do you think of this? And you're losing opportunities to sell. And 
um, I think it, it was another interesting facet to this is it's like, so when do albums not leak? So there was like this big thing that I actually haven't seen written about a lot of places, but like, you know, for years there was an employee of a New Jersey record store who I'll make nameless because they haven't been like prosecuted in a court of law or anything. I don't want to get in trouble for slander, but um, and it was very proved that this person had this insane ratio on a, a torrent site because they were every, you know, so for people who don't, don't know with record stores, record stores often get the Tuesday releases on Friday so that they're positive that they're in on time. Right. And um, this person was unboxing, even though the boxes often say, do not open until Monday at midnight or whatever. And they were unboxing them and uploading them to what CD? And so what CD is a private torrent community for the particular nerds that really, really um, want these releases in advance. But uh, yeah, that's like a crazy, crazy thing. And um, so you see that it's very rare that a lot of releases weren't leaking by at least the Friday before. So at least the weekend before everybody had it. Now, I should also say this as somebody who bought a lot of records in a pre-internet era, I got a lot of CDs three days early um, back in the day because they wouldn't think the CD meant anything. So, for example, I got Weezer's Blue album on the Friday before it came out because everybody's like, oh, whatever. This is just some inconsequential new band. But, you know, I was the first to have that of, like, anybody I knew because it just happened to be on a shelf because they didn't care about stocking it because they didn't think anybody was running to the store to get it. So, right. Yeah. Um, and so I that's, think that that's one of the things is you're always seeing a leak happen now. Yeah, and there's so many different scenarios. And again, there's so many different, there's so many great, great and a bat, like great ways to improve on a really poor situation. And it's just so mind blowing when, la when labels or bands don't do it right. Circus Survive is another good example. Last year, uh, their album Violent Waves leaked something like a month early, and they didn't, nothing changed. They didn't do anything about the release date. But the craziest part about that to me was that they were, they were independent. They they didn't have a label. It was all on them. They could have done whatever they wanted. You know, they could have put the album up that day for five dollars on Bandcamp or something like that. And they could have said, "Hey, we're trying this thing where we're going to be on a we're we're labelless. We need your support. Someone leaked this album. Support us, please. This album leaked over a month early. It, it's supposed to be a huge step for our career, you know. And instead, they didn't say anything. And it wasn't. And it just." You know, it just was there for a month. And a band like Circus Survive, they're similar to say anything in that they have a cult fan base. But at the same time, when you have truly no strings attached to a label or something like that and have your freedom, it was kind of confusing to me that they just didn't they didn't flip the switch and say, hey, like, come buy this. Come buy this now. We need it. Well, I think what's interesting on that side of it, though, too, is, you know, you see so many bands now, especially that are kind of going on the, like, you know, like Circus Survive did, like the we're not going to have a label anymore. We're going to do this ourselves. That a lot of the bands are seeing this as well. We don't care if we profit from the music as much. Let's just make sure it's out there. And however they get it, they get it because we're really trying to sell merch and touring. Right. I don't know. So still, there's still really cares how they get it. Yeah, and I guess if you think about that way, and like if you're the band and that's your prerogative, that's cool. It's just like it's you're basically losing. You're just losing money. To me and that's why i think run for cover is the best label at handling leaks and as you and i guess that did start you know like you were saying with real talk and with tiger's draw last week it leaked a week or, or i guess two weeks early 
they put it, it was like 1 a.m. They put it up for $5 download and it becomes a huge story because Absolute Punk and Properties Act and all press, we all post about it and we say, Tiger's Draw album leaked two or three weeks early, buy it for $5 now. And then the text of the post say, hey, support Tiger's Draw and run for cover. Get this for just $5, you know? And that mm-hmm. boosts sales because then Tiger's Draw jumps to the top of the Bandcamp charts and then they potentially get new fans as well. And so that's, to me, it's just, like maybe that was a revolutionary idea four years ago, but now that that's like free for anyone to take, you know. So it's so confusing yeah. when when all these smaller labels, like, because I feel for a label like Hopeless or Epitaph or Rise, like it's going to be harder to get them to to sort of shift to be looser on how they handle leaks. But when you're talking at the run for cover and no sleep top shelf area, if labels don't do that, then you're kind of just missing the point, I think. And it's a good way to get others to support your label and your bands too if they've never heard of you, right? Like that helped that helped so much, I feel like, with Man Overboard. They got credit. Oh yeah. I mean, there's no doubt about it, the amount of press that we got for that um did good good things for the band. And also, you know, for a band uh that like kind of was like not always getting the respect they deserved because of their lyrics being so playful and childish like it kind of actually gave like a bit of like punk rock diy ethic respect in some communities that i was kind of shocked about and that stuff is important when winning over kids to try out a band and listen that's going to kind of be like some you know asshole kids guilty pleasure quote unquote totally and then you get people that people that like i guess more like us i would be like wow that's really smart like someone like that's a good team i'm going to give this band a chance now because i just think they're smart and, you know, you can't, maybe that's only a few people in the relative fan base, but if you're a band that does that continuously, you're going to get a lot of fans like that over time, and that's going to result in money, and that's going to result in your livelihood at the end of the day, you know? And, and obviously those few people who respect that usually are also the few people that are followed by a lot of people who then tweet out what they like and share what they like and influence other people. And, you know, getting those people on your side is an important step. Yeah, or just talking about it on a podcast. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that's probably a good time for our first sponsor break. Uh, joining us once again is Limited Run. Limited Run is an easy-to-set-up direct-to-fan solution for labels and artists. If you want to sign up, go for it, and you'll be selling within just a few minutes, and you'll have all these great options like cart limiting, digital street date solutions, and physical, physical and digital bundles and more, and you can set up PayPal and credit card options alike. Uh Sales reporting is one great feature of Limited Run. Uh, they show your charts and sales in an easy uh, in an easy to read graph at a glance, and you can see what you sold yesterday or a week ago, all in your time zone, and and it splits stuff up great in terms of gross profit and then profit without shipping and all of that. We use it all the time for bad timing records and also for knuckle pocket. It's just a really great way to see how your store is doing. Thank you once again to Limited Run. Check them out at limitedrun.com. You know, it's another cool feature that I think people overlook of them that you and I and uh, Thomas from Bad Timing were talking about this week is that you could upload a master quality wave at 1644-bit, but then any of the customers can also choose which quality they want. And I think that that's such a good thing to have because everybody has their audio preferences these days. And uh, I think that gets overlooked so much that... Because I see how often bands upload MP3s or AACs instead of the full quality so that their nerdy fans can get really a great copy of the record if that's what they want for their library. I agree, actually. We 
Thomas and I sort of st- we all stumbled upon it by accident. I got we had never uh, well we have a release coming out soon, uh, and it's our first release that really includes uh, digital as well as vinyl. And so that's the first time we had uploaded digital files to Limited Run, and we were kind of we were just stoked. We were like, wow. They did another great thing. Surprise. Not really. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Great. <laughs> totally. Great, great company. Um, so for our next topic, just I, I guess we can just call it being multifaceted in the music industry. Um, I talk a lot about it di- with a lot of different people, and I think a lot of people within the music industry talk about it with a lot of different people. It's just sort of uh, having three jobs, let's just say, that equal the paycheck of one normal human's job. Um and that you know that can include the stress and the benefits and the failings of three jobs separately all into one. So it's just triple the stress. I I guess you could look at it that way. Um, I guess though you you're a pretty good example. Has it always been that way, Jesse, for your whole time in this? No, I have to say there was a lot of years that I just produced records, but I was also um, not under the adult burdens that I am now of um, insane Brooklyn rent. Prices and uh, fun things like that. Um, and, you know, I'm not 26. I'm not under my parents' medical insurance anymore and stuff like that. And so there was a couple years that, you know, producing could get me the money I wanted. But, you know, I also always had other aspirations, too. Is like, you know, I think that's the one thing is that a lot of motivated people, they say, you know, let me take on a couple different things because I want to just keep doing things that challenge me. But, um, it is the thing of that, you know, I run a very busy recording studio. I both produce bands. Um, almost a third of our business is uh, mastering now. And um, another about sixth of it is me just mixing bands that record themselves. And so, like, that's kind of like three different hats in one and that. And then, you know, for years I mastered – I managed bands. Um, I don't do that anymore. Um, and then, obviously, I write books on the side as well. And uh, I think that there is a thing of that. Sure, there are people who can get a job that pays well enough for whatever their means are, but there is growingly a uh, thing of that, you know, if you're not spreading yourself out a bit, you might not have the steadiness because also some of these checks get really weird. If you're managing bands, there's certain months if the band isn't touring or putting out a new record or never mind if they're a really slow-paced band, like, you know, imagine when you're, managing a band that gets to a point like brand new where you're going years between records, you know, you have to have a lot of bands filling in that gap to maintain some steady income because your landlord's not going to go, oh, cool, I I didn't realize that they're not putting out a record for the next two years. It's cool. You can pay me when you get that big check check three months after the record comes out. All right. So do you think a lot for, I guess for you, I think what you said about just sort of you're now getting more into just mixing and mastering and that's eating into, I guess, the the uh, pie graph of, I guess, what your income looks like. Do you think a lot of that is just sort of reinventing what you do? And, you know, I don't know how to necessarily phrase it, but sort of... Adapting, yeah, I think adapting, you're saying? Yeah, adapting, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, no, I made a very conscious decision, and it wasn't even a decision I had to, like, straight this up, but, like, I do believe in the home recording thing and that bands being at home could sometimes harness their creativity. I also know that recording with a good producer can teach a band a lot and let them see the way towards things and get them better. But if a band chooses to fulfill their vision at home, I I was on a panel like eight years ago and I was the only one who said that was a good thing and that shocked me. But 
it's paid off and you know i enjoy doing it and you know there's part of me that really likes doing it too because it's usually unattended work and i can kind of stroll in at 3 p.m. if i want to walk a dog of a neighbors or something like that um for a while and go grocery shopping in the middle of the day and i can just do it when i feel creative and i like that a lot but i do think that there's a lot of this that yeah there's also the thing of adapting is that if you're somebody who's used to making $120,000 a year, you might not start to need to have something that's like, you know, your steady startup job or your consulting gig on the side of the bands you manage. Totally. And so I've been getting myself into that situation now. I've been in college for three years. I started doing the website when I was a junior in high school. Uh, and obviously, I, I sold I sold properties act to Buzz now Spin Media in freshman year of college. But um, I I had a really nice gap, and I guess we talked about this last week. Where uh, to me, like what college should be if you want to get into like this overarching business is that college should be sort of this purgatory period where you get everything done as much as you can in order to be able to make the salary you would like to have once you graduate. Um, and so I didn't really think about that the first three years of college. And now that I'm sort of winding down my junior year, ooh, finals next week, um, <laughs> I, I am in a spot where it's like, oh, I need to make money. Money is you got to you have to live. <laughs> you know, it's like, and that's yeah. not a. Th- I, I've been really fortunate with my family to not need uh, like a, you know, a shitty whatever kind of job at like at a Wawa let's say or you know at a 7-Eleven whatever to to get that kind of money but at the same time I do like everyone else obviously need to make money after I graduate so I've been in a really interesting and different mindset lately of just thinking like well in a year once I graduate how are these different jobs that I do going to piece together are they going to make for a great salary or are they going to make for a normal human salary that works a normal human job or a little less or a little more i don't know but balancing properties act and the label and management you know it those are all sort of uh fluctuating things like like you were saying too it's you know the site the site could have a really great traffic month uh next month and that could make the few months after it have a higher income, but then what if we sort of nose tail and just steady out, you know, a quarter less than what we're doing now for monthly traffic, then our ads are going to hurt. And what if, you know, what if, like you were saying about brand new, like the bands I manage, they either slow down or break up or they're not really functioning at a level that they might be functioning now at, like that's lesser income too. Or what if with the label and Thomas and I, at this point, we're not like the label is not a, job for us in the sense that we're not commissioning money from it we just want to make the label as great as it can but you know one day it would be awesome if the label could pay us and be you know be our livelihood uh and that's obviously a dream but maybe that could be a reality one day but still what if the label kind of self-destructs too and that's a really like i guess dark outlook on life but i feel like that happens all the time you know it's there are all these jobs that at one point could be really great and they're all separate incomes from each other that's and that's really nice but at the same time there's so much inconsistency just with what we do that it's kind of a scary thing and i feel like it's necessary though to have more than one job unless your job is ultra secure right yeah and i think that this is like also like one of those things like i have this like joke list for a a book i'm gonna like make one day of like what they didn't teach you in music school that they really should have or in music business school i should say and music school 
Um, but like everybody has bad months, no matter what these are, if you're in a commission type business um, and you can't get just used to the good ones. Like one of the, my favorite stories is um, Steve Albini who produced Nirvana's in utero, obviously a huge record. Um, he didn't work for months after that because everybody thought he was too big for them now. So all these bands that normally would have called him were like, oh, he's too expensive, but he was charging the same rate. And then he has a slow month. And then, I, you know, I'm friends with a million producers. And, you know, you could be having such a hot record. Like, you know, some of the hottest points in my career, all of a sudden there's two weeks with, like, very minimal work. And you're like, what happened? Or, you know, at one of the hottest points in my career about 10 years ago, um, I was booked for nine months. But then all of a sudden the drummer of the band I was supposed to start in three days got a hernia right before it. So now I'm out of work for four weeks because that band had booked a month. So, yes, I can keep the deposit, but, you know, the deposit's only a quarter of the money I was supposed to get. And so then I have to pick up some bands and all that fun stuff. And there's so many things like that. If, like, you, you're a booking agent, the band cancels a tour, that's a lot of commissions down the drain or even a loss if the venues are um, asking for certain stipulations in their your contracts – there's so many variables of how this stuff works that, yeah, like finding a couple things so your income isn't always resting on this is super, super important. Yeah, uh, and I guess this kind of fits in well. Uh, last week, a uh, a writer named uh, Luke O'Neill published a – he's a freelance writer, so he writes for so many different places, uh, Noisy, Alt Press, Boston Globe. The list is really uh, long. Uh, but anyway, so last week he kind of went on Twitter rant of being like, you can get paid well as a freelancer, and he's a writer. And so that's a really, mm-hmm. that connects really well, I think, probably to you in terms of recording because, hey, there might be there might be work this month, there may not be next month. And it connects well to me because of the website. Um, and so he, saw, he said very bluntly, like, I made 60 grand in 2013 from freelance writing. And people were shocked. And I was shocked too. And I thought, wow, that's kind of fucking awesome, you know? And uh, then, mm-hmm. he, then he went as far to publish what he basically got paid uh, for each kind of post he made on each publication. And that publication list was about 15 deep and it was all, it was just bare bone information, but it gave a really good look of what it is, what it's like to be a freelance writer. And it opened up a long, a long conversation of like, well, one, should he have even posted it? But beyond that, cause that's not really interesting. Just more of like that dude has to work his ass off to get paid from 15 different places, you know, and that's, that's hard work on it on top of actually making quality writing. So those places will hire him. And, you know, I, I just think that shows that maybe even more than an other, maybe more than in other fields outside of music or writing or recording that like the drive needed has to be so crazy because you really need to be hungry for the work you're getting. It's very rare. And I know very few people that just sit, in an office all day and know that they're going to make this month this much each month or that they have health care or something like that. And so I feel like, and we'll put this, I'll put this in the show notes uh, at offtherecord.fm. But, you know, I thought it was really cool that he sort of went through like, Hey, like this is how my life looks now. And it's, it's actually going pretty well. I may make more in 2014, but you can do it too. And I think that's important because I guess, you know, it can definitely be intimidating and, and worrisome. Yeah, and I think, like, there's another aspect to this, too, that's really interesting. So, like, you know, I'm a decade and a half into not having a, ever had to, like, go back. Like, you know, I think, like, 15 years I did Guitar Center for two days. But, like, I'm 
yeah, about 16 years into not having had a real job. And there was a point like, you know, I was uh, to make the money I needed to make and keep growing my business. I was working 300 days a year. I was never taking off day, any days off. And uh, I got really bad fatigue. I got burnt out. And, you know, there was the, the year I made the most amount of money. My career is going great. There's bands flying over from like Belgium and I'm doing bands from Japan all the time. The next year I got so burnt out. I was like, I can't do this anymore. I got sick for a month, had no medical insurance. Um, and then I made the least amount of money I made that year because I basically was so exhausted. I had to do as little work as I possibly could for a while because I was so burnt out from it. And that's another like crazy aspect of this is like we're talking like well do you need three jobs it's like well that takes a hell of a toll and never mind like you know for that guy luke like i don't even know how you get inspired to write that many articles <laughs> like i can't personally find is that many things that i find int something interesting to say and there's times that i aspire to write that many articles and you know there's just to me it's like i think maybe i'm getting old and i'm like okay i've heard this before for 20 years you know i've read the are you a sellout art debate for, you know, since I was 15, so that's 21 years that I don't really find that interesting topic to take on anymore. But like, it's crazy to get that, to find the balance of how do you do all this and not get burnt out? How do you work these million hours and stay happy? Yeah, that's a really good point. The sort of just f fatigue and exhaustion of sort of working yourself to death. Uh, Last year, one of the podcast networks I listened to, 5 by 5 they did a show called The Frequency, and it was a daily show. And the host and the founder of the network, Dan Benjamin, so he was recording the show every day while also recording five to ten other shows a week and also being the like head of the company. And his job is to literally have a voice, right? Like He is the voice of the podcast network. He is on probably half of the shows of the network. And he worked himself into the ground so hard that he basically like, didn't have pneumonia, but he was in bed for a month and he couldn't speak. And that's his job, you know, <laughs> and his job is to speak. Yeah. And so, you know, he he wanted to grow his company and he wanted to make his dream come true or however you want to spin it. And it, you know, he went too far. He overworked himself because of it. And there were massive consequences. And that's really definitely something to worry about. Like right now, even like I'm definitely feeling run down for the first time in a while. And I think I basically just need to get out of school for the summer. But, you know, it's yeah. still, you still start to feel it. Your mind just isn't as snappy as it was before that exhaustion sets in, you know. And, of course, if it's a physical thing, then you'll feel that in different ways. But sometimes it can just be that your mind is a little too tired right now. And, you, you know, your, our minds are pretty important for the jobs we do. So there, there's definitely mm -hmm. a there's definitely a balance, but finding that balance can take years. It took me a long, it took me years, um, you know, after I almost had like a very near life death thing with a peanut allergy to realize like, oh, I should do the website differently from how I've done it the first two years because I have no life outside of it, and it's really like screwing with my personal relationships. So I took a step back, and then I reevaluated my balances and. Everything's a lot better now, but it usually I feel it. I've found at least with other people too, it usually takes some kind of unfortunate incident for people to be like, "Oh, I need to do this better," and that I think that's probably always how it's going to be. Yeah, no, no, I mean, as somebody who's been you know doing that since I was your age now, and uh, you know now been doing it for another sixteen years, it's like you're always reevaluating. Like I, you know, if I tried to work three hundred days a year now, I'd literally would die because at 36 
And I'm in, you know, I exercise daily. I'm in great shape. I eat nothing but organic food and juice every day. And I'm a total health freak, but that's how I get all these things done. And, you know, I sleep, I never sleep less than eight hours unless I, you know, have a real bender or something and party a little too hard, maybe once every three months. But like, you learn what you can and can't do as you get older and you have to learn how to take care of yourself. And it's even down to simple things. It's like you're talking about, like, you have no social life. Like, if I don't take long walks every week, my mind gets cluttered and I feel weird. I learned I have to be alone for a certain amount of time every week. I learned I have to be around friends or else I feel lonely and crazy. And that eats into my emotional work at work. And, you know, um, you learn how to take care of yourself through all this. But what's scary is, is that, yeah, you know, you also want to pursue your dreams and be happy. And so, like, to get to the bigger thing of, like, that year I made the most money of my life, I also went, you know, you're, I was really unhappy because all I ever did was work. You know, there was a, um, from September to December, I had only had a half day of work off at a time ever and I wasn't happy. So I changed how I was. I decided to make less money the next year and just like try to reevaluate things. And I made just enough to get by. I didn't go crazy. I say I'd had a lot of money in savings and I blew through that while I tried to figure it out. And now I have a good life balance, but it took, you know, really being really, really run down to make that change. Yeah, it's a, yeah, the the balance point is different for everyone, right? And like, like I yes. take I take walks every day too because I get to think on my own or listen to a podcast or music or whatever, and that's how I get to think. But not everyone does that, and you know, someone else has something else to do, and that's that's kind of the most important thing: figuring out what that is for you. I would say. And, it, and it, yeah, it's funny too because like I know about you and I. We have friends of ours who are like, "Those guys are crazy. I can't believe how much they do. Where are they thinking starting a podcast? Like they already do so much." And like you know, I've like I you Dave Shapiro is somebody famous in the music business. Everybody's like, "How does he do all that? He books three million bands. He has a label." Da da da. da and, you know, some people can do this. So you have to find your balances. I don't think you necessarily have to do three things, but it's also something to consider that you need to have those angles of income. Yeah, yeah, it's it's going to be different for everyone, but you just got to do it. And one of the other secrets I think that's also really funny is a lot of people, you know, so there was a big band um, that, you know, literally probably had one of the biggest indie records of four years ago, and I uh, worked with them on a benefit, and I'm talking to the manager. I was managing bands at the same time. I find out this guy has a day job, like literally like an advertising, and he's managing a humongous indie band on the side. And I think that's the funny thing too, is, is like, I think a lot of people have a vision of like, well, you're managing and, you know, managing a band that's blowing up is a full-time job and can take up six hours of your day at minimum. But some people find a way to also do that with this, to maintain a thing. And that might be what you have to do for a while until you just can't do it anymore. Like when I hit the point with like, when I stopped managing man overboard, it was very much like at the uh, edge of I'm going to have to either quit producing or quit managing bands because it was just trying to do both jobs wasn't working anymore. Yeah, and that's a scary thing for me, I guess. Like at this point, I, I handled everything really well. And, you know, I, I definitely slip up with priorities every once in a while. But it's like, how far can you push your limits? I, I went before I wanted, before I switched over to, to uh, this management company, Synergy, I went to speak with one of my teachers who runs a record label, and he was like, I just kind of take on stuff until I hit my breaking point, and then it's very apparent I hit my breaking point. And I was like, I guess. I don't know if I want to do it that way, though, but I don't know that there's really another option for me. And so 
I have not hit that breaking point, and I hope not to. Um, but it's definitely a, it's definitely like a, oh, I may have to pick one day kind of thing, and that's a, that can be a scary yeah, thought too. I, I, I had to do those picking. You know, about ten years ago, I had worked at um, a radio station called WFMU for since I was seventeen years old, and I eventually got so busy with producing. So WFMU is an almost all volunteer staff, and I just went, you know. While I love this job, I can't volunteer anymore and do this like a bunch of days a week and drive for 30 minutes each way, then record a 30-minute session, come back, and then do a 10-hour session anymore. Um, and I, the same thing, I used to write for Tape Op Magazine, and I just said, you know, these interviews and articles I do just take too long. And, you know, while that paid, it was just like it was too much for me to do anymore, and I had to say no, and you I sadly have never seen anybody who doesn't make their decision by that. At some point, they just go, this is too much. Whatever I like the least or whatever I believe in the least or whatever isn't paying has to go. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's probably the smartest way to do it at the end of the day. Um, <laughs> one of those three. Yeah, one of, one of those three. Um, so we are sponsored also, once again, by Card Included. Uh, Card Included is the only self-serve download card service around for just a few dollars bands and labels can secure large amounts of download cards with no sign up necessary uh upload your music and logos and you know just be ready to cut out some download cards and, and stuff your vinyl with them and cards can include and collect information uh about how to about who is downloading that music as well so you can better plan for touring where to go where not to go and much more it's really simple to use and i highly recommend it Go to cardincluded.com for more, and thank you for sponsoring Off the Record. I guess Apple bought Beats. Yeah, the Beats finally put up a blog saying that they uh, purchase, or were purchased by Apple, and uh, there's a nice picture of Jimmy Iovine, Dr. Dre, and uh, Tim Cook, Eddie and Q. Eddie Q. Yeah, uh, and so the, the price tag was $3 billion, which was $200 million less than the rumor. Uh, it's not clear if that number detracted because it was wrong in the first place, or maybe they got Apple got two hundred dollars removed because of a dunk a drunk Dr. Dre uh, video that appeared on the internet. But I, I, also, they got like a bunch of lawsuits thrown at them immediately. Like you know, let's remember Beats was bought from Mog, and the CEO of Mog is now suing Beats so for unpaid royalties. So I, they definitely got some. Uh, legal trouble i think it's easy to believe that apple decided the valuation should go down a bit yeah definitely and so the purchase overall though uh i think it kind of went over really well i think the two weeks of sort of rumor mills uh made everyone come up with their own theory and i think everyone mostly was happy with their own theory because it was basically this is what we think should happen and so Apple finally came around, and in a very Apple way, they were just kind of like, hey, we're doing this. Uh, we're not announcing anything. We're not announcing that, uh, you know, we have 10 new Beats headphones line ready to go or anything like that. It was just kind of like, we did this deal. We're very happy about it. Um, what was interesting to me was that they com they just continue to reiterate that, like, the, the phrase, it's all about the music. And, you know, in, in that sense, it kind of, like, this is Apple going back to its roots of iTunes and iPod and, and stuff like that. But also in the press release they sent out, four out of five of the paragraphs were about the Beats music subscription service, not about the Beats headphones. And they will be continuing both, but it's kind of interesting to me that it really seems about uh, 
about the music uh, service to them. And so, Jesse, you found a, a good article called The Unmentioned Perks of the Deal. Do you, you want to start running through some of them? Yeah, so Jay Frank, who wrote, um, I should say this, that um, I wrote my book on the music business because there were, I didn't think there was any good ones. I thought they were all terrible. Jay Frank's the exception to that. He's written two great books. One's called Future Hit DNA, which is about, about how music trends have changed, and then Hack Your Hit, which is about music marketing. So he consistently has a blog that writes great posts. And so this one was the unmentioned perks of the Beats Apple acquisition deal. So I thought the first one he mentioned, which was the in-app subscriptions, which I think was a really interesting point, which is that – so if you do in-app subscriptions, um, you have to pay Apple the 30 percent fee for allowing you to use their payment system to do that. Um, whereas if you're RDO or Spotify and you get people to subscribe on your website, you obviously don't have to pay Apple a dime. So now with Apple owning Beats though – that 30% becomes, you know, a non-existent thing and they're able to profit more off of a streaming music uh, site, which I think is a really interesting thing. Yeah, no, in apps are huge. Uh, I watched a interview that um, Jimmy and Eddie Q did at the Recode conference last week. It was the day of the announcement and Jimmy up front was like, well, we only have 250,000 subscribers, but we made a big mistake off the bat by not starting with in-app subscriptions. And so, you know, they seem to greatly recognize that that's kind of a huge, a huge, you know, point of strength for them. And, you know, that's kind of like how the app store works now, uh, just in like so many game, yeah. games, like games are now free or they're 99 cents. And, you know, Candy Crush wants you to buy 800 coins for $8 because the game is maddening. But um, with something like in-app subscriptions for music, like we haven't really seen too many people fiddle with it yet. And, you know, I would imagine that the best people at in-app subscriptions could be Apple since it's their platform. So it's going to be interesting yes. just to see how that develops and how Apple takes advantage of it. And, you know, like, what the press release sort of said as well is that Apple has 800 million plus credit cards on file. And they typically, and that means all those 800 million credit cards have either bought something in the iTunes music store or on the app store. So either way, it's kind of a really major win-win for Beats because all these people are comfortable spending money on Apple's platforms and they're giving them a perfect and easy way to get the music they want in a better way and that that app itself is sort of blessed by Apple, obviously, since they now own it. So you may like previously, someone be, may be like, "Oh, I know Spotify," but all of a sudden it's like, "Well, Apple Apple bought Beats. I'm gonna I'm gonna try out Beats at least." Oh, it's only this in-app subscription purchase makes it really easy for me, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You can see all these different ways that they can take advantage of it, and I think that's kind of great. No, I, I agreed, and it, it's gonna do them well because people are also. You know, so much of purchasing is getting people comfortable with the system. And I think, you know, I don't play games, so I don't see the Candy Crush side of it. But, like, you know, when I subscribe through, like, a service that does magazine subscriptions, it's always an app subscription. Like, things like that. So I'm comfortable with that, and I trust that. I just really want Beats to put a uh, new releases page on so I could actually use it. <laughs> I That would be good. Yo, you know what was really interesting, actually, in a bad kind of way, I guess, is Eddie Q during that Recode conference said 
2014, six months in, compared to any other year, have Apple has had the least amount of new releases in their iTunes store since its launch, which is kind of like crazy, I guess. Huh. Well, uh, so, so, so if you want to unpack that, I could say what some of that is. Go for um, it. Aside from, you know, being the punk rocker I am, I listen to a lot of experimental dance music. And uh, when you're done laughing, I'll explain. <laughs> um, so a lot of the songs that I really, really enjoy never make it to iTunes because they, and you know, EDM is such a big thing. I don't necessarily listen to like the Tiesto Swedish house mafia style stuff as much as like some weirdo in his attic making some weird synth sounds that are kind of dance influenced. Um, But a lot of these obscure genres and a lot of the like really underground stuff, um, and this could also go into the punk world as well, is saying, who cares about iTunes? Um, Let's just put it on SoundCloud. Let's just put it on Beatport, or let's just put it on Bandcamp. Because it's cool to just be on Bandcamp now if you're like an obscure underground punk band from Brooklyn or some weirdo indie noise band, and you don't want to be on the system. And it's the same thing with Beatport, is a lot of people, or SoundCloud, is people are finding their communities there, and they're just going, I don't really care about paying $50 to TuneCore every single year to do it or even being smarter and paying $20 for as many songs as you want to put up on DistroKid. Um, so I, that, I would posit, is a good amount of it, is that we're seeing a weird underground dispersion rebellion against going to iTunes, Spotify, RDO, and all the services that get uploaded to Google Play or whatever. Um, that's going to be my hypothesis on some of this, but I also will say... I have no data to prove this. This is just pure observation of me being a nerd. You are a nerd, but I think that's true. Like this, <laughs> the SoundCloud thing is, I think, a really good point. Like that's a platform specifically, and I guess Beatboard as well. But I don't really have any firsthand experience with that. But SoundCloud is just something that you know you'll see so many more things just pop up to. And I guess as long as you know listeners are comfortable hitting download and figuring out how to put that into their iTunes library or whatever library they use or maybe just the SoundCloud app that it's no biggie but for Apple to publicly admit that and say something's wrong is happening right now you know beats is how we're going to try to supplant that i think is you know i it's an, it's an interesting thing for the company to admit but it's also you know potentially telling just how things are continually shaking out Yes, but I think it's also, um, it's. I don't want to say it's entirely bad news that this is a trend because I think one of the things that gets lost in the conversation a lot of time is that the promise of Spotify, RDO, and Beats or any streaming music service is that it would get rid of torrenting. And the reason that these really, you know, as the rumor always says, these pathetic royalty rates that you get from Spotify exist is because there's supposed to be more money that's coming to you as they get more subscribers and they get people to stop using torrents. The whole way this has happened is it's the promise of we'll make everything so much better for you that you don't have to use torrents anymore and so much easier. And I'm living proof of that at work. So like even when bands I really love, if their record leaks or somebody has it and they're offering it to me because they're trying to be cool and I don't do it because I don't use my iTunes app pretty much at all. I just 
use my audio playlists and that's how I consume music and I'm too lazy to do it because they've made it so easy for me. I have no interest in taking the time to go to a torrent site and download a torrent then put it in my iTunes and do it because they've made my life so much easier. And studies in a lot of the European countries have shown that there's a lot of people like me that are just like, mm, I'm going to pass. I know people like that too and I wish I could be like that. My use case is just different because I get advances of music, you know, and that's for my job. And so I can't just throw those in audio. I have to use iTunes, which I'm happy to use. I don't dislike iTunes. Um, and so then I just end up using iTunes because I don't want to be switching between two or three different applications all the time. But, you know, I feel like if I removed that part from my life, then I would just be using yeah. audio or beats or whatever. And I would have no problem doing that. <laughs> Especially, like, I like a lot of people... I think backhandedly and incorrectly say, I don't want to see like, I don't want to see what like my friends are listening to. I don't care. But in my circle, at least, and maybe this would also go away if I weren't getting advances. Right. But like in my circle where I am, like, I think it's really interesting to see what some of my fellow people or friends or whatever are listening and, to, especially if it's something that I could like, just, just haven't found out yet. And so, that's a really important point too, is that all of these people who shun Spotify, RDO beats are, losing out on friend recommendations. Like one of the examples I make in my book is like Johnny has a crush on Susie and he sees on Facebook and the activity bar that she's listening to transit. Let's say he's like, Oh, I'll go listen to transit. So I have something to talk to Susie about. That's huge. And it has never been so easy before. And the other thing about it is these services only work when everything's there. Like one of the reasons you still see movie torrenting, be so prevalent is the movie business is not adapting the way the music business is, which is hilarious. But like, um, because so many movies aren't on Netflix, there's no service that just has everything that's no longer in theaters anymore, or no service that doesn't have just like an exclusive thing of like, once it's up on Apple for rental, then it's everywhere. And when that changes, yes, we'll see torrenting really, really, really go downhill because I don't know. I know there are people who think that $7.99 or $9.99 is too much for Netflix, but I don't know any of them. And whoever they are, I imagine just hate everything and are total cynic assholes who could just complain all day anyway. Totally. And yeah, and that's what such a benefit, I guess, of Beats or Spotify or whatever is, is that most everything is there unless there's that really cool person that just wants their stuff on SoundCloud that you were talking about, right? It's that there's the free there's the freedom of everything so so that that's a bad tread that could uh halt this the other bad tread is i read this morning i didn't get to get too much into it but it looks like amazon's going to be adding music streaming to prime but what's the interesting part of the contract is is that all the major label releases won't go to it until they're 6 months old so oh i did see that now i did see that actually for 6 months when they're hearing yeah Obviously, that's in return for them getting a lowered royalty rate um, so that they can include this in their prime service, which I guess is going up in $20, $20 a, month, a year for uh, people. Um, but yet again, this is another one of those services that for the money I pay, even if I was paying $20 more, I still think it's well worth it. But that's not good that it's going to be an incomplete library because that's going to still keep people on the torrent sites for releases. And that's the opposite of what we should be trying to work for. but. Sadly, the big major labels keep pushing for this. And I should say the big major labels and Merlin, who uh, 
does the negotiations for a lot of the biggest indies. Um, they keep arguing for these silly, silly, silly rules when we should be really trying to figure out how we get full-fledged services that make the consumer happy because that's what will bring money back into the music business is having people always spending this money and having a massive subscriber base instead of having them just gain music for free. And it is silly because I'm never going to switch to Amazon service, right, if it doesn't have everything and if, or if it only has things for limited times or it takes longer or whatever for it to get there. So even on the users, the user end of it, it's just like, you know, my my single problem with me needing to only use iTunes is that I can't put my uh, not on audio music on on audio's platform, and I understand that, but that's what holds me up there. But for like Amazon, is taking even more away from that for me, and it's just a no. It's just there's just no way, you know. So it's interesting to sort of see all the different methods people are going to battle out for this, and ultimately who's going to win. Yeah, I I think that sadly Amazon's just banking on the people who aren't passionate enough about music to buy it, like you know, like your friend's mom who only listens to the Beatles anyway. Um, they're hoping that that service will entice her, or she, you know, the person who hears about Imagine Dragons a year and a half after the record's been out, and they're like, "Oh, cool! I'll put this on." And I'm not paying nine ninety nine for a music service because I'm not that passionate about music. I think this just makes their platform more valuable for that. So, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think it's a good step. But at the same time, it's probably a great idea for Amazon personally. And Lord knows they don't care about anything but themselves, as we've been seeing with the the way they handle their business. Do you have any recommendations? I lived one of those weeks that uh, I didn't really live much. (laughs) I shouldn't say that. I had a lot of fun. But um, I've been reading David Lynch's book from a few years ago called How to Catch the Big Fish. And uh, it's all about getting better at being creative and stuff like that. And I think it's an awesome read. And uh, I've been listening to Menzinger's Rented World a whole bunch because it's a great record. And I've had it for a few months and it doesn't get old. And I was going <laughs> to recommend that one. I just saw them on Friday. I saw them on Friday or Saturday, Saturday in Philly. And it was just an incredible, incredible show. It's really that band. just Yeah, they're, they're, great. they're the best, <laughs> best guys. Uh, and, you know, yeah. from the moment. There's some bands like, you know, when I did their first record, when they walked in here, I was like, these guys have it from two minutes after I met it. And it's so amazing to see where they've gone. Yeah, uh, I would recommend since it just got announced today and I listened to it out of nostalgia, uh, nostalgia, Census Fail, Census Fail announced the Let It Unfold You 10 year tour today. Uh, and that'll happening. That'll be happening in the fall. Uh, Knuckle Puck will be on that, which is great. But also the album I like as well. Uh, you, you know, um, uh, it's horrifying to hear it's 10 years old because I know it, we recorded it about a year and a half before it came out. So <laughs> that makes me feel really old to think that that happened yep. that long ago that we were making yeah, that record. Think about it that way. Uh, well, well, thank everyone for tuning in. Uh, you can find more of us at offtherecord.fm. Uh, feel free to rate us or subscribe to us on iTunes. It helps the show out a lot. And thank you to Limited Run and Card Included for sponsoring us this week. 